Hello again, and welcome to this episode of Defense Deconstructed. I'm your host and president of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Dave Perry. On today's show, which we're recording March 24th, 2023, uh, we're joined by our fellows, Eugene Lang and Tomas Junot, our program director, Ian Brody, and Vince Rigby to discuss how Canadian governments uh, create and build Canadian defense policies and what that means for the defense policy update that was announced in the April 2022 federal budget and is currently underway. Uh, Gene is a former chief of staff to a couple of ministers of national defense and was heavily involved in the 2005 defense policy strategy. Tomas, you know, prior to moving to academia, was a DND policy officer and was uh, in the department for the a couple of defense policy exercises. Ian Brody was the chief of staff to Prime Minister Stephen Harper during the Canada First Defense Strategy Policy Development Exercise. And Vince Rigby had a number of roles, including as the Director General for Policy Planning during the 2005 uh, Defense Policy Statement, uh, then became the Assistant Deputy Minister for Policy, and then finished his career as the National Security and Intelligence Advisor to the Prime Minister. In addition to their bureaucratic service, uh, Thomas and Vince are the authors of a forthcoming chapter, The Making of Defence Policy in Canada, in Canadian Defence Policy in Theory and Practice, Volume 2, and some of their comments today will draw from that research. Defence Deconstructed is brought to you by Davy Shipyard. Founded in 1825, Davy is a premier builder of advanced specialized icebreakers and many other ships for the Government of Canada and the private sector. As Canada's longest established, largest and highest capacity shipbuilder, Davy has delivered many of the most pioneering vessels ever built in Canada. Davy generates thousands of good jobs and billions of dollars for Canada's economy. Through its work, Davy is helping to build a sustainable marine industry, combat climate change, defend sovereignty, support trade, generate exports, and unleash the potential of the communities it serves. Welcome, Jean, uh, Ian, uh, Thomas, and Vince. We're looking to have a, a very fulsome discussion today about how Canadian defense policies, capital P, get created. Uh, we're having this in the context, we're taping this as we speak, as the American president uh, is speaking in the House of Commons. Um, but as there is uh, consideration of a federal budget next week, uh, and while a defense policy update is underway, which arose from a commitment in the April 2022 budget uh, to undertake a defense policy review. The announcement that was made last spring, uh, and I quote, was that Budget 22 announces a defense policy review to allow Canada to update its existing defense policy, strong, secure, engaged, in support of its broader international priorities in the changed global environment. The re review will focus on, amongst other things, the size and capabilities of the Canadian Armed Forces, its roles and responsibilities, and making sure it has the resources required to both keep Canadians safe and contribute to operations around the world. I'd, uh, I'd note there as, as we start this that the Canadian experience on a government doing a second defense policy uh, has some limitations. My best effort to, to capture this, uh, the Pierre Trudeau government, after they did their 71 uh, white paper defense in the 70s, did sort of a follow-on exercise in the 1975 Defense Structure Review, um, which uh, had some mixed results. Uh, and the Mulroney government, did a, it, after its 1987 white paper, did a 1992 Canadian Defense Policy, uh, which I find very few people are even aware of its existence. Um, so I don't know that that effort is usually looked at uh, with a lot of success. So the fact that a government is doing a second defense policy review in and of itself is fairly unusual. And we'll see what comes of this one. Uh, and as we sit here, the announcement uh, that was made last April did seem to catch virtually everybody by surprise. And as the text I just read out said, it was the budget announcing 
we would be doing a defense policy review and the Department of National Defense, for instance, uh, was uh, not apparently clued in on that until the budget came out. Uh, and initially, there was the view that that process would uh, be finished by the fall of 22. Um, and we sit here having this conversation on March 24th of 2023, as it is still ongoing. So that was some some preamble and some some lead up. Um, you have all worked in various different capacities, uh, chief of staff to prime minister, minister of national defense, various parts of the bureaucracy in uh, national defense, and the policy group specifically, uh, and then at Global Affairs Canada. And as best of my knowledge, you, you at least cover some form of involvement in the 2005 defense policy statement, the 2008 uh, Canada First Defense Strategy, uh, and then uh, Thomas and Vince wrote uh, a book chapter that talked about the process to create the 2017 Strong, Secure, Engaged Policy. So you span a, a wide breadth of policy formation. Gene, I'd, I'd start with you to kind of kick off this discussion about creating capital P defense policies in Canada. From your vantage point, where's the impetus to conduct these types of reviews that actually get launched and underway formally? Where, where does that originate and does the motivation or the origination which i assume can vary from time to time based on your different perspectives uh, how much impact does the the way that these things get started uh, influence the way that they bear out okay so i would say that the impetus for any defense review that's meaningful and that's going to lead to significant change if that's the ambition meaning significant money has to come from the very top of the government and by that i mean the prime minister Usually these things end up in some kind of a mandate letter, in my experience, where the Minister of National Defense is mandated by the Prime Minister to conduct a defense review. I'm pretty sure that's what happened in 94. I know that's what happened in 04. Um, I suspect Ian would confirm that likely happened in 06, 07. And in a couple of those cases, they those commitments came out of election platform commitments. That was certainly the case in 2004, it was the case with Mr. Harper's review in 2006. Those are platform commitments. And that's not insignificant because what that means is a few things. One, it's a significant political commitment for the government, probably. And two, there's usually money set aside for the outcome. It may not be enough money, but there's money booked in the fiscal framework, usually, that comes out of an election platform. So having an election platform, I think, is a very important platform commitment can be very important to succeeding in a defense review internal to the government. But I think, as you, to answer your question about the impetus, I think it's got to come from the top. The, def the defense minister doesn't decide to do a defense review unilaterally. He or she might recommend that, but ultimately it's got to come from the PM, I think. Ian, what was your experience? Yeah, I think Eugene's right about that. I mean, uh, uh, <clears throat> we had the advantage coming into government that at least in the defense portfolio, our defense critic and opposition, Gordon O'Connor, was slated to become the defense minister who would get the mandate letter. So the process of developing that election platform commitment was a little more um, you know, pr predictable. I mean, uh, O'Connor made the case for it in opposition. It ended up in the platform, and then he got the job of 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 carrying it through for better or for worse, and f and I think there was a shared understanding before the mandate letter was issued that the Canada first nature of the defense strategy would be the overwhelming driver of of the defense policy review. I don't think that was intended to be in any way a criticism of the two thousand and four uh, uh, exercise. Uh, it was not 
intended to counterpart <laughs> counterpoint us to what had come from the government before but it was it was intended to be a statement about um certainly o'connor's view and the prime minister mr harper shared view of what the priority was for for a defense review at that point that's why i think you're right to highlight this current ongoing whatever we're going to call it when it's done uh the fact that it came out of the budget process which is ordinarily you know finance minister to prime minister I mean, the prime minister is still involved but <clears throat> i wasn't involved in this obviously but my impression from what i've heard i think you're closest that i am davis that you know usually things that pop up in the budget like this are because somebody in the finance department has decided we don't have a very clear picture of how this money is going to be spent or we're not clear that there's a match between ambition and resources that are available here and we're going to use the budget to surprise the department we want we we the finance department want a full report on how you're planning to spend this money and they kind of rope the prime minister into into cracking the whip on that I can just jump in, Dave, on that point. I mean, I think Ian is completely right in that a lot of this driven perhaps out of the finance department. I think the prime minister's office can also play a role. And from what I've heard with respect to the update that uh, D&D was blindsided, finance obviously drove it because it was in the budget speech, but there may have been some other conversations that were happening elsewhere inside both the bureaucracy and at the political level as well that then got channeled over to, to finance. So there, there may have been a, some conversations happening across government and D&D was conveniently or inconveniently left out, left out of the loop. I just make one other comment with respect to who takes the lead and who shows the initiative. I, I think that uh, both Gene and Ian are right. It's usually the government in the best possible scenario. It should be the government leading, but you'll often find that on the departmental side, they'll read the tea leaves and there'll be a meeting of minds. So with respect to the 2005 defense policy statement, and I helped draft that and worked very closely with Gene on it. He was Minister Graham's chief of staff. I was Director of General Policy Planning at the time. Uh, we had already started to think about a new defense policy. You just have to look at the international security environment, which had changed so fundamentally since the 2000, sorry, since the 1994 white paper, where you know post-Cold War, first white paper, uh, drastic reduction in budget, drastic reduction in force structure, et cetera, et cetera. And so the numbers and the budget were going down, but the operations went up. And then you had 9-11, you had terrorism, you still had failed states, you had all kinds of other stuff that was going around. So I remember us in the bureaucracy looking at each other going, well, okay, uh, Paul Martin is going to come in eventually in all likelihood. Um, look at the international security environment. Uh, we better get ready. <laughs> we better get ready for a review. So we had started working even before Paul Martin came into power to, 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 to be ready because we were fully expecting him. One of the problems I think this creates, Dave, is that, I mean, we'll come back to this later, these are not routine exercises. Like no. an annual budget is a routine exercise. The finance department does basically the same prep work every year. I mean, there's decisions to be made, but but a budget is an annual process. The estimates are an annual, multiple estimates during the year. Throne speeches is a routine process. There's nothing routine about a defense policy review because they're initiated in a sense once there's a sense in the government somewhere that there's a need for one rather than there being, you know, it's March, we need another defense policy statement is the way there is for a budget. Oh, February's coming around, we better have a budget. 
as Ian said, there's no routine process. There's no standard process either. One thing that that was really interesting for Vincent and I when we drafted the, the chapter, we looked specifically at 05 and 17, but we also looked at some of the other uh, processes, including CFDS and 08, and every time is very different. Uh, there's no standard template for how you do defense policy. And that that's an interesting question because it, it does raise the next question of, there's no standard template, but is there a better one? Is there a better way of setting up the process uh, so that it leads to a better outcome? Part of the reason I think there's no standard model is that the, 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 the causal factors for them are different. Sometimes it's a ma major shift, shift, sudden shift in the international security environment, like Vincent just outlined with respect to 9-11. In 1994, it was a combination of a fundamental apparent shift in the international security environment, coupled with a fiscal crisis of the Canadian government at the time. Um, sometimes it's merely a new government comes into office and they've got an election commitment, or maybe even they don't have an election commitment, and they just want to change defense policy in some way. So the drivers behind them are different in every case. And therefore the way they unfold is different. The people involved are not always the same. The people that are driving it. And in our case, probably the first and only time in Canadian history, the CDS was heavily involved in defense policy development in a way that that had never really happened before. And I don't think it's happened since and probably should never happen again. Uh, but it was an experiment, and there was a certain set of circumstances that Vincent's well, well attuned to that you could argue, and I would argue, kind of necessitated that in that case. So yeah, every 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 exercise is different. Um, and to Ian's point, these are big exercises. If they're real defense reviews, they're all consuming for senior leadership, civilian and military. Plus, the prime minister's got to put a lot of his own time in. Paul Martin put an enormous amount of time in on the defense review. I personally was in hours and hours of meetings with Mr. Martin on the defense review. Um, so it's a big undertaking. You don't undertake it lightly. And I think this government undertook it lightly by announcing it, as Ian said, in the budget. And now it's reality time. How do you do it? Who's involved? What's the impetus for it? What's the underlying driver for this? You know, what's the agenda here? The Americans why you see, sorry, Dave, didn't mean to interrupt, but just to follow up on that point, I think you see a reluctance now on the part of governments to conduct these big reviews. So defense would be an exception. So as you said, two defense reviews, review and an update, part of the Trudeau government, but no foreign policy review, no national security policy review, a development review, which I was involved in when I was at GAC, which was as much of a shit show, if I can use the uh, you know, really sophisticated poly science term uh, as 2005 was. Um, and I think they stepped away from that and going, we're not doing a development review anytime soon. So they are really, really tough. And from 2005, I can tell you the idea of ever doing an integrated review again, yeah. there was so much blood on the floor from 2005. You still have deputy ministers around who say never again, you know, 15, 20 years later. And one final point, I mean, Gene's 100% right. Governments come in and, and, and want to change things, but it's not just governments. Gene, you and I talked about this over a coffee. Paul Martin coming in and wanting to distance himself from Jean Chrétien yeah. within, within the same government, effectively, and saying, um, you know, I, I've got this internationalist bent and, and I feel almost, 
I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to say he felt guilty about what, what he did to, to the, the Canadian forces in terms of the, the gutting that took place over the, over the 1990s, but I think he did want to restore the credibility and effectiveness of the Canadian force. And so he wanted to, to conduct a review upon a very different stamp on defense policy from, from what you saw in the Jean Chrétien. So even under the same government, it's, it's personality driven to a certain extent. It's quite, it's quite fascinating. Compared to the United States, because uh, I was down in the U.S. for the for one of their big reviews, they have two advantages over us, or advantages, I don't want to say that. They have two differences. One, they have a fixed four-year presidential cycle. So that's, that's I don't think it's an advantage in the scheme of things, but it's an advantage in this sense that you can time a national security review, a defense review, a military review, now a development review, and so forth on a four-year cycle. And it's meaningful in the sense of the turnover of the executive branch. And then they have the advantage of a very sharp system of checks and balances and a separation of powers. So their national security defense planning cycle has, on the one hand, uh, an advantage in sort of lining up all the boats uh, inside the executive branch. And I mean, their executive branch is kind of ungainly to begin with. But it's really primarily, I think, a political instrument to, to, to drive on a four-year basis some kind of commonality between uh the executive branch the senate the senate appropriations system uh and the house and the house appropriations systems about what are we trying to do over the next four years it has become routine um it's a very high stakes obviously but it has become routine and it has the advantage of because it's mandated by congress it's not an invention of the executive branch it's mandated by congress you're not getting an appropriation for defense uh until we see these reports because we want to know what's going on uh, that has the advantage that it forces everybody to get onto the same page. There obviously there are compromises, there are strategic silences in their documents because they can't get to that point. But once the big national security strategy is done, and once there's a defense strategy and a military strategy to go with it, there is sort of a, a congressional executive process on policy and on appropriations that 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 follows from. We have this common point. Can we proceed with it? So I, I want to do one, a couple of things. I'm going to make, make the point uh, just to build on what Vince said, that I think we can all stipulate that ideally um, we would follow the logical process of having a national security strategy or policy and a foreign policy and then have defense reflect on that. But I think, as you illustrated, uh, there's a, an aversion of various different sorts uh, to doing that. So we're into a, a not, uh, th there's nothing dissimilar about the situation we're in right now where we are doing uh, a defense policy without a full foreign policy review aside from the Indo-Pacific strategy. So that, that part's uh, not all that dissimilar from a lot of other efforts. Um, but Tama, to, to get to you to, to talk about a little bit about the process um, in terms of the, the kind of the how on doing this, what you're talking about, there's been lots of different structures. I would assume that some of that, again, would tie back to um, campaign commitments or whatever the other initiating premise was. So to, to quote from the 2015 Liberal Party platform, it stated that they would immediately begin an open and transparent review process of existing defense capabilities with the goal of delivering a more effective, better equipped military. Um, incidentally, and we'll come to this in a, in a little bit later to talk about the financial aspect of this, that policy had also committed to basically holding to existing defense funding um, trajectories, uh, which 
as we saw that policy process unfold, were, were inherent contradictions in um, the pl platform commitments. So in, in that case, in 2017, uh, Tamad, there was a very explicit commitment to having open uh, uh, policy, which led to a lot of uh, public consultation. But talk a little bit about what some of those different mechanisms and the constituent parts of the different approaches to doing this have looked like historically. So the, the 2017 uh, policy, Strong, Secure, Engaged, uh, was unique in many ways. Um, there was a fairly robust and extensive governance process around it, committees and so on within D&D and the, and the CAF. Um, one of the elements that also made it unique was the very extensive consultations uh, that happened uh, much more than in 2008 uh, with CFDS, much more than in 2005. 1994 had some consultations, quite a lot, but even then, back then, not as much as 2017. In 2017, there were four main components to the consultation, one of them uh, with the public, uh, where uh, ADM or ADM, uh, the D&D hired a consultant to manage a, consult a consultation process where members of the public could just submit um, ideas, texts, and so on. Uh, there was a, a dimension with experts where there were a number of roundtables organized with academic, civil society, veterans, and so on across the country. Um, there was another element with allies where people from ADM Paul, but also from the chief of force development on the military side, had a, quite extensive consultations with allies in Europe, New Zealand, uh, UK, uh, Germany, France, who had gone through similar processes uh, before. So, and, and in some cases that led to very uh, concrete suggestions that were implemented. For example, Australia had hired an external consultant uh, to play a very active role in, in costing uh, the process. So D&D ended up actually hiring the same consultant to do pretty much the same thing. And the fourth element, which in many ways was pretty much the most unique, uh, was an advisory panel uh, of eminent Canadians, a former CDS, uh, General Henault, a former senior public servant, Margaret Purdy, a former su Supreme Court judge, uh, Louise Arbour, and Bill Graham, former uh, Minister of National Defense. And they played a fairly active role in getting briefed by um, the, the civilian and military sides of, of D&D and the CAF, and then being consulted by Minister Graham in his office. Um, and that that was fairly unique. And, and when Vincent and I wrote our, our chapter in the, the future edition of, of the defense policy book uh, that we've been doing, um, it, it was interesting how some people on the bureaucratic side said that initially they were a bit skeptical of that advisory panel, maybe viewing it as a bit of competition, not being sure if it would be anything else than a time drain. But in the end, it appeared to have been quite useful for uh, a number of people. The, the question that for me is interesting with all the, the those four pillars of consultation is, does it actually matter, right? Does it actually have an impact and change for the better, uh, hopefully, the substance of the policy? Not clear. We interviewed a number of the people involved in 2017, and generally, the, the, the view was it didn't necessarily change the substance, but it validated some of our ideas. It confirmed when we were on the right track. It act, acted as a challenge function. But where, and I'll, I'll finish on this, where it was really important, and I think is it's unfortunate when it doesn't happen, is the the transparency dimension and the dimension of engaging the public, of legitimating defense activities, the, the you know the <clears throat> idea of, of just educating the public, increasing awareness, getting the media, civil society involved, just to, to raise the level of discussion on defense issues in this country, which we generally don't do enough. So even if the answer to the actual impact on the substance of the policy is not clear, I think it's still very important to do it. And when it doesn't happen, it's it's a problem. 
Vince, uh, I'm going to ask you to build on the point you made earlier that uh, having led the unit in the policy group in the Department of Defense um, that is responsible for undertaking policy creation like this, um, I guess from what you're saying, there's, there's effectively no standard operating procedure that you would go to about how you would do these with specificity. Obviously, you know, I think part of what Tamal was just talking about, the, the Trudeau government, at least in its early days, was very inclined to do consultations and public engagements and advise, uh, engage with experts on a whole raft of, of, of files. So the, the doing that on defense was very much of a piece with what they were doing on a whole number of other policy uh, issues. But just talk a little bit about how the policy unit are responsible for this in the Department of National Defense. I mean, do they, is there essentially a playbook of some kind um, or is it a clean sheet of paper each time? I think to go back to Gene's point at the outset, no, there is no playbook. I think it depends on the circumstances, depends on leadership, depends on the direction. There are all kinds of intangibles that you, you take into account and, and you're off to the races. So there were two particularly important intangibles, I'd say in 2005, which made the playbook a little bit different. And I have to say, I mean, there's a line in our chapter uh, where effectively the, the drafters of the 2017 policy basically looked at 2005 and did everything exactly the opposite and that's why they're probably successful <laughs> because we had virtually nothing in terms of process and in terms of good governance, et cetera, and strong security engaged the drafting team and the entire approach, I think was much, much better organized and, and, and put together. And I can't help but think that they were looking back at 2005. But to go back to the two intangibles, first of all, we were part of a broader review and you have to remember that we were part of an international policy review. So there was a, there was a, a, a chapeau piece but then there were separate documents, separate processes for foreign policy, defense, trade, and development. And um, we spent a lot of time looking out at that process as much as we were looking in. And you know, for about three quarters of that process, it was chaos. It, it really was, and Gene can talk about it at the political level. It was bad at the bureaucratic level, uh, falling over each other, tripping over each other. No one had ever done this before in Canada. I don't even know if anyone had done it internationally. And uh, you know, looking back on it, it was pretty abysmal. There was a process in place, some intergovernmental work, but I would say it was token at best. And uh, you know, we'd meet every once in a while at ABM level. Uh, deputies met from from time to time. PCO, PCO got involved. I think, Gene, you can you can weigh in here. But when the PM got involved, the PCO got involved, and and so the FNDP advisor, Foreign Defense Policy advisor, would would, would weigh in and go, you know, the PM's not happy, or the PM wants this, or the PM wants that. Um, I was only a DG at the time, so maybe there were meetings happening at, at the DM level, but I don't think there were a lot where the integration was coming together. So that, that drove a little bit of the chaos and, and a little bit of the, of the ambiguity. The second big intangible, and Gene again, and ripping off him a little bit, was, was Rick Hillier. And so you asked specifically the question, you know, the policy group. Yes, the policy group leads a policy review. Um, it's very clear that the deputy minister in the Department of National Defense leads on policy. The chief of the defense staff leads on, on um, all things military in terms of capabilities, in terms of requirement, in terms of command and control, administration of the Canadian Armed Forces. And he certainly informs defense policy, but he does not make defense policy. In this case, uh, Rick came in, he, he filled the vacuum. <laughs> he filled it in a major, major way. He made an immediate connection with the minister and I think he made an immediate connection with the prime minister. And so you had this, this perfect storm, if you want to call it that. And, and I think that, and again, Gene can speak more eloquently to this than I can, but the minister saw uh, Hillier and, and kind of went, well, I'm not getting quite what I want out of the policy group. 
and there's still a little bit too much status quo. I want vision. I want big, 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 big vision here, big new world, big new security environment. So I want big ideas. And, and Rick filled the vacuum. And to his credit, he did. And if I were in the minister's place, I may have done the same thing. He went, get that guy there. He's got the big, the big view. But what ended up happening is that uh, it, it became very much Rick Hillier's review. And the policy group still held the pen, still played that coordinating function, and still set the big pieces in terms of the broad roles and the security environment, et cetera. But, but Hillier came in and really put his, put his imprint on. And so the policy group, uh, compared, say, to 2017, didn't have nearly as, as central a role or as strong as a role. I mean, yeah, we probably, at the end of the day, wrote every word that went into the physical document that got, that got put out. But the, the ideas, the driving force behind it, um, they, they, were, they were Rick Hillier's, they, they really were. So that made it a very, very different review. And as Gene said, it had implications in terms of the role of the deputy minister, uh, the role of civilians in the conduct of policy, and the whole civ mill relationship was kind of flipped on its head for a few years there, and it didn't get sorted out until the next government. So I'll stop there, but I have lots more I can say on that, as you can see. I just want to build on that point, if I could, because I think this illustrates a larger issue that might be relevant today. It's true that Bill Graham wanted vision, if you want to use that word, but you have to understand why. And part of the reason was, as every defense minister that goes into the Department of National Defense finds out in their first week on the job, the department comes in every time and says we're broke. And we're not broke by a little, we're broke by a lot. And that's what happened this time. I went through that with two different defense ministers in two different governments and heard, you know, variations on that theme. So the, 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 the narrative from the department, and this is both military and civilian leadership, they were in lockstep. There was no daylight on this, including uh, Vincent, your old boss, uh, Ken Collar, was part of this. The department needs a lot of money. The money that they were throwing around was big, big money. Beyond what the Liberal Party had committed to in its election platform uh, in 2004. Okay, so that's the first thing. The minister knew from his conversations with the prime minister and some of the key people around him that big money for national defense beyond what was in the election platform was a possibility. I don't think anybody, and Vincent sort of confirmed this to me in a recent conversation we had, in the bureaucracy understood that. And that's partly failure uh, maybe of communications on my part or the minister's part in making that clear. They were very skeptical that big money was on the table. So they were writing a small money review. We believe big money could be on the table because the prime minister had said that to the minister. Now, he hadn't settled that in public, but he said it to the minister because for the reasons Vincent gave. He, I think there was a certain guilt about his authorship of I know, the significant cuts in the 90s. But the bigger thing was, keep in mind, Paul Martin, the narrative then was he's going to be prime minister for 10 years. That was the conventional wisdom. And he saw mil the military instrument of foreign policy as very important. He knew that you needed a military instrument if you wanted to act on the international stage the way he wanted to, and he knew it was depleted. So he had his own interests and the government's interests. So we knew there was an opportunity for big money, but we needed the vision piece to sell the PM on it. And we couldn't really get it from the department, partly because they were skeptical about the money. 
Hillier wasn't skeptical. He had more confidence on this even than the politicians had. And as Vincent said, he filled the vacuum or the gap, I'll call it, on the vision piece. And as a result, we were able to unlock the money. And it was big money. It was bigger money than anybody thought, including people like me that were directly involved. And at that time, that was the largest increase the Department of National Defense had received from any government in 30, well, yeah, 30, 25 or 30 years. Um, $12.8 billion over five years was the exact amount of money on a then $12 billion base budget of the department. So it was big money. So that that was the, that's the thing here. If you you've got to put these pieces together, you've got to understand the intent of the government's leadership, what their ambition is. The prime minister align the policy to the ambition, and then the money can get unlocked. In my view, this review that's going on today is doing none of that. In other words, defense policy reviews only work if they're top down. If they're driven from the top down, I believe that's what happened in the Harper government. I know that's what happened in the Martin government. I know that's what happened in the Cretchen government. If they're bottom up, where the, where the approach is, the minister goes to the department, military leadership and says, tell me what you need and what you want. And it becomes bottom up. It will fail every time. It cannot be bottom up because it won't align with the goals and objectives and ambitions of the government. And that's the role of a good minister and a good deputy to figure that out, to figure that piece out, I think, if you're going after real money. And it seems in most of these reviews since 1994, the ambition has been for big money. Ma? Uh, just quickly add on on that, and I agree uh, exactly with what Gene just said on the importance of, of this being top down uh, as, a, as a condition for success. But another condition for long-term success has got to be a robust governance process. And, and of course, when you say that, people outside uh, roll their eyes because it's boring, and people in Ottawa uh, you know, find that robust governance is, is a lot of work, and that's, that's fair. But one of the, 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 the problems, I think, the weaknesses with 05 is that, yes, you know, the, the tornado that Hillier represented when he came in completely changed the dynamics, and that's true. And, and as, as Jean just said, it, it led, uh, you know, it provided the impetus for that money to, to be unblocked. But there was very little vetting of these ideas. There was very little challenge function of what was realistic and feasible of these ideas. Uh, so a lot of what was in DPS, which might have been good ideas, were not fleshed out properly they were not challenged they were not worked out and they ended up either not happening uh, or in some cases happening but being more trouble than they were worth uh, in in other cases uh, so yes ideally top down as Jean just said I fully agree when that doesn't happen you don't line up the conditions for success but the other conditions on the side that did not happen or alongside that one that didn't happen in 05 is really setting up all of these working groups at this, you know, on, within DNDCAF, engaging the rest of Ottawa, engaging finance, engaging Treasury Board, signals checks with foreign affairs and so on to make sure that it fits with the bigger picture, which didn't happen or certainly didn't happen enough in, in 05. This episode of Defense Deconstructed is brought to you by Irving Shipbuilding. Canada's national shipbuilder is currently hiring. 
For more information on the many jobs and opportunities currently available, please visit www.shipsforcanada.ca slash careers. You know, I'm interested in your perspective on this from where you sat on the 2008 effort. And I'd ask you to start segue into what's the what what would be a sort of a, a representative case from the, the Canada First Defense Strategy experience. How many trips to government does uh, a policy effort like this, you know, assuming that you're looking for real money, I think we're all we're in a dynamic now where all these reviews are tied to real money because we're looking to do things that are very expensive. Um, not necessarily in a COVID response perspective, but in any kind of normal uh, evaluation, uh, multiple tens of billions of dollars is real money. Um, so Ian, what was your experience from that point in time? And then talk a little bit, I'm interested in your other experiences too. Is this you know one trip to cabinet or are you going multiple times? I want to be careful about answering that question, Dave, because we were in the middle at the same time of trying to grapple with what turned out to be I think a, a trickier than expected tactical situation on the ground in Kandahar. So trying to try to disentangle Canada first defense strategy trips through cabinet from uh, in some sense, the broader context of trying to sort out. Yeah. It's not that I don't think the Canadian forces were prepared for the tactical situation they were going to. I think that Rick had them very well prepared actually in that regard. Uh, but on the political side and on the broader whole of government side, Abin Toma and I've had a long conversation about this. Someday I'll we'll write it up. Um, just a total lack of engagement by political people and the rest of government in what was going to happen. And, and by June of 2006, certainly I had become extremely alarmed about that. And I think that was increasingly broadly shared across the public service was that, um, anyway, we'll go into that in a different day. There are patterns of trust, as I think Gene's sort of uh, sketched out uh, here, that have to that, that are a good precursor to this. Or Thomas talks about the governance structure, which I think is the same, which is the same thing. Is that who's going to be who are you going to trust to reconcile? I mean, Gene says the quiet part out loud, but he's right. Um, you can't have a bottom-up process here without at some point. The discussion of what capabilities are we trying to achieve for this government and the next two governments to be able to deploy in response to what they think their needs might be you know 10 years from now or whatever it is 15 or god knows 40 years from now whatever it is um and somebody has to be able to pull that together i didn't find uh that the deputies we were dealing with at that time were engaged in that kind of conversation um, I think the then vice chief, um, uh, Natinchuk was an essential, uh, uh, part of that, uh, helped, but also hindered by the fact that the minister at the time had longstanding personal connections with everybody in the senior ranks, um, of the Canadian forces side and had his own view of what the civilian side of DND was able to, uh, to bring to the table. And in a sense, the Canada first, so the Canada first side of the defense strategy was overtaken by the increasingly difficult tactical situation on the ground and the pressing need to deliver kind of immediate tactical resources uh, uh, for that. We didn't really get our heads around that until the Manly panel exercise in 2008, and that, and then I think things have dramatically improved, have dramatically improved since then. 
But I'll give an example. Um, one of uh, the things I was looking for, certainly, and I don't think I was alone in that, in the kind of first strategy was, you know, can we simplify the fleet around what we at the time called a single surface combat? It became a different, you know, now Canada surface combat, but a single hull that could provide, you know, you could build, in a sense, inside the hull and around the propulsion system you know, submarine capacity, air capacity, other types of capacities, but we could sort of simplify the exercise going forward. We had sort of a once in a hundred year opportunity to kind of move to a single uh, common hull. That was a huge fight, uh, a, a huge fight because the entire Navy was built around, no, no, we must have two types of hulls here. We cannot have one. Um, and there was a whole industrial base built around that and so forth. I mean, I think in the end that's turned out to be what it is and i'm not sure i was right about my view i'm not sure everybody else was right about their view we'll see we'll find out 50 years from now when we have some results uh, uh to show but just that part of it itself was you know as the prime minister's chief of staff i spent an awful lot of time on that file and there's a lot of other things to do in the prime minister's office and mr harper was involved in that there's a lot of other things to do that sort of thing is was, ex was extremely difficult but gene's right his government had put an awful lot of money on the table. We had some adjustments to that, but not in a meaningful sense. And so we were helped by by all of what had gone on, by all of what had gone on in the previous two years. Just to go on an engagement with the political government, um, Gene, I mean, just can you sort of situate, I mean, is, how many conversations was were involved with the defense policy statement? And I guess integrated with that were the other components of that integrated uh, or maybe integrated the wrong word, but the international policy statement, that exercise, how much engagement were there with cabinet ministers? You mean with cabinet or with select ministers? Both. Well, with select ministers, there's about five ministers implicated in it. There was the trade minister, the foreign minister, the um, defense minister, the prime minister. Development. And development minister. Uh, so there were several, and I was at most of these meetings uh, that the PM chaired with these ministers and deputies, and we would sometimes bring Ron Buck or Rick Hillier. Ron Buck was the vice chief in those days. Uh, and those could be interesting meetings up in the laundry van block. You all know that room well, and uh, there's quite a few people, and they could be, they were frank discussions, and there were many of them because, well, many, there was at least three or four, because the PM, Mr. Martin, di didn't like what he was getting of anyone except us, <laughs> oddly enough. And, and I remember one meeting, he admonished the other ministers and said, why can't you give me something like with, with like I've got here from Mr. Graham and DND? Because he eventually started to like what we were producing. Not at first, but it came around. So there was a number of those sort of... Uh, informal meetings with the PM and several ministers and senior officials. I think there was an MC, obviously. I think it went to cabinet once, I think. It went to a cabinet committee, and then I think it went to cabinet once. Vincent might remember better than me. I don't think it came back and forth. There might have been a, you know, a pre-teaser, a deck presentation or something in advance of that, but I don't rem remember multiple trips into cabinet committees or cabinet but there was a lot of work that went on behind the scenes with key people in the PMO, the PCO, the finance minister's office. I was on the phone with 
Mr. Martin's chief of staff with his director of policy, Peter Nicholson, who played a huge unsung role in the success of that initiative that very few people to this day know about. On the money side, he was dealing with Goodale and the finance department that were, as, as usual, very reluctant to give DND this amount of money. We're not impressed by Rick Hillier. In fact, I heard that Goodale virtually threw him out of his office one day, he went over there, and we were not cutting any ice really with them. It was the PM that weighed in with them and his people and got the money out of them in the, at the end of the day. So there was a lot of informal stuff going on, but informal cabinet discussions, my rec recollection is maybe one or two. I, I don't know. What do you think, uh, Vincent, about that? What yeah, they were, they were minimal, minimal and, and, you know, what I gathered from from you and discussions with a few others was that there was one I couldn't I couldn't remember, um, but I think that what's interesting is big big policy reviews that when they when they're ready for prime time they go to cabinet and there's a big big discussion around the cabinet table, and everybody weighs in all the ministers weigh in and there's big discussions about okay competing budget items and resources limited resources and what role those kind of really want to play in the world. And so there's a pretty robust discussion. I don't think it happened on this because the PM was so engaged. I mean, that's my take, Gene. Like yeah. The PM was so involved. He was changing sentences. He was changing comments. He Absolutely. Was, he was in it. Yeah, and having ready. individual conversations with each minister as well. And so when it was ready to go, it was, it was more, the PM had his stamp of approval. So it's ready to go. And so I, I found that cabinet almost became a little bit of, you know, after the fact, oh, we better tick that box, but I think we're ready to roll here. And the money, the money had already been announced, right? It had already come in the budget. The DPS, the IPS was announced after the 12.8 billion. So we had our money. Uh, so there was limited- Well, we, we had the money because they were sold on the document. It hadn't been released publicly, but- they yeah, yeah, but yeah, to we your argument- got anywhere near that money. To your argument- That vision, kind of a, of a- Absolutely. Of a document. your argument, Elliot's- Hillier's vision drove the money situation. And, and so we needed we needed that without a doubt. But it was a very different process in that regard as well, because I've been in some cabinet meetings where it was like, holy crap, this review is not, it's not going to get approved. Yeah. And you'd go back multiple times. Um, and you'd have to go after a cabinet meeting and go around again to each individual cabinet minister and try and convince them. I mean, a ton of legwork done beforehand. So this was very, very asked backwards in the sense that it was basically well, no, but, but that's but i think that's the way it's got to be yeah it's probably going does. after huge money and these reviews invariably are going after like money that affects the fiscal balance of the government we're not talking like a few hundred million bucks here that finance can hide we're talking levels of money that affect the fiscal balance of the government you know what i mean by this ian right that's what we're talking about yeah the credit rating will be impinged if we don't get this right yeah. if the pm isn't engaged like Martin was, you're going to have a hard time because finance is always going to be skeptical about DND. Doesn't matter who the minister is, doesn't matter who the deputy is, they're paid to be skeptical. That's their job. So you've got to beat them back with a bigger gorilla, and that's the PM. The defense minister can't unlock the money. And I think, again, that's the mistake they're making in this review. They think the defense minister, who's a line minister, can unlock this money that they want, at least big money. It can't be done. It's never been done, I don't think. You've got to have the PM weighing in. And maybe these meetings that I discussed with small groups to the key ministers, with the PM in the room and half a dozen deputies in the room, that maybe those were the key meetings that that made, that unlocked the thing. 
So we'll get to the conversation about the, the money in, in a minute. I, I want to come to Tamon next. Yeah, the, so the SSC experience is interesting, uh, the 2017 one, with, with, with regards to all that. According to, to the interviews that we did, uh, there were eight to ten instances where SSC was discussed in cabinet, uh, which has some pros uh, in the sense that it, it gets the buy-in of, of multiple, pe- multiple ministers, means no surprises further down the road. But it also means that it gives more opportunities for ministers to try to get their hand in in various parts of 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 the defense policy from an industrial regional benefits perspective and so on. the The other thing that was interesting that happened with with SSC was, uh, and that always happens in previous instances, but but my understanding understanding is that it happened much more, is that the chief of staff to the minister, the deputy minister, and the CDS really had a, a very proactive traveling roadshow, like they called it, that went across town um, in multiple rounds um, as the process was going forward to get the buy-in from ministers and deputy ministers in central agencies, finance, treasury board, uh, but also relevant ones like foreign affairs and so on, uh, where they they worked really hard. They showed up with placemats to every, uh, every one of those meetings, being able to say, this is what this policy means to you. This is what you gain from it, uh, to make sure that they would get uh, buy-in uh, throughout. Um, of course, that happens in other instances, but but apparently it happened more in SSC. And SSC did also unlock a lot of money, right? So it was essential that it would happen uh, in in that case. And so, Ian, part of the reason I ask you is I recall uh, receiving a briefing about the Canada First Defense Strategy, and this was there was a weird discussion, weird dynamic at the time, because from my recollection, that strategy originally was released as a series of backgrounders. It was, I think, four or five different backgrounders, and then a document followed, uh, like the full published PDF. And in between, there were some meetings, and the deputy at the time had mentioned that there was a committee led by Minister Strahl, I believe, if my memory from back then uh, is holding up, that engaged in a series of six or seven or eight or something like that conversations that led to that um, the, the process and the official approval of the document. Yes, um, I would say that the cabinet committee process for national security decisions at that point or for national security discussions at that point or consultations at that point was very immature. I mean, there was no <clears throat> there was no standard operating procedure for doing it that we were able to kind of adapt and uh, driven by the fact that the, the premise had a strong degree of trust in his defense minister and in his procurement minister, public works minister, uh, to make pieces of this um, happen. So in a sense, the cabinet process was short-circuited. But I think Tomas is probably onto something here that a broader cabinet discussion leads to broader buy-in, which is helpful and fewer hiccups along the way. Um, I recall only one um, vigorous discussion at the full cabinet level um, about this, which came just before Parliament returned in 2006. It was unfortunately in the week following uh, the Medusa operation on the ground in Afghanistan. Uh, I won't go into the cabinet conferences here, uh, but the discussion did not go well. Uh, it was a, a very alarming discussion. Uh, it was clear that uh, cabinet had not been briefed previously on the ground situation in Afghanistan, had taken reporting about Medusa poorly, um, and the Prime Minister had to, in effect, call off what otherwise would have been a very difficult discussion, and then I spent, he and I and the clerk spent another week or two 
trying to recover from a, a very bad cabinet discussion uh, that had gone very badly wrong. Um, and at that point, uh, there was a period of probably a year of trying to wrap some process around this in order to recover it. But I don't think anything was settled until after after the Manley panel report and after the parliamentary vote in 2008. And, and I left in the summer of 2008. I think things improved remarkably after that. That's what I mean when I say um, the tactical situation on the ground, the complete lack of political and broader whole of government wraparound of the Afghanistan mission was a was a continuing problem for the delivery of, of CFDS. And in a sense, those two problems were solved or were solved, were managed at the same time and to a conclusion, the one contributing to the other. I want to shift gears and talk a little bit about the money. I think uh, Gene uh, has been uh, fairly uh, fulsome in his discussion about uh, the sequencing there and expectations about funding. Um, I, I think the one outlier potentially in this scenario was this 2017 Strong, Secure, Engaged effort, uh, in which again, so as I said earlier, um, the government, the party, Liberal Party in 2015 had committed to contradictory things, doing a review, or potentially contradictory things, doing a review to address their perceived issues, as, but simultaneously committing to basically keep the spending line on its existing trajectory uh, without committing to more. And then in the lead up to the 2017 policy, I went through and as best as I could find from public documents, the effort in 2017 was the first instance you could find on the publicly accessible uh, policies and budget documents where the money for the policy was not announced in the budget before the actual policy was made public. And in the instance of Strong, Secure and Engaged, there was no announcement of money in the 2017 budget. The 2017 policy did commit to a significant increase in, in funding, and that was basically handled through um, a letter, uh, as I understand it, um, to the prime minister and the, or the finance minister. Um, and so that's a unique circumstance. As Ian, if you talk a little bit about the 2008 scenario, was there an expectation that a certain envelope of money was on offer or just put a little color around the fiscal piece? Well, I think the strong, secure, and engaged, again, was a, was a, was a, quantum improvement uh, here and, and based on things that we did that 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 did not go well in the 2008 exercise. Yes, <clears throat> Canada First Defense Strategy had with it, but on an independent track, a 2% real escalator in the defense envelope, you know, to, to pay for it. I mean, there was not the idea that we would, obviously, there were individual costs associated with each of the individual lines in the Canada Defense the First Strategy, I think, on the whole, based on the track record of Ottawa and estimating some of this stuff, actually those estimates were pretty good. But the idea was not that we would tie each one of those line items specifically to the defense budget. The idea was we'd have this inflation plus 2% escalator that would grow over time. And that would give D&D a little bit of flexibility, or actually over time, an enormous amount of flexibility to time some of the big capital investments without having to worry about the year-to-year -year impact on the appropriations um, uh, uh, you know, for, for the department. I think we understood that there were gonna be problems with lapsed authorities if we managed it any other way. So the advice that came up from the public service, not from DND and not from the, the Canadian forces, was if you're gonna do all of this, let's have a, a stable 2% real escalator. The stable, because it came up through a separate process, I don't think everybody outside the person under, sort, of, sort of understood these were connected. <laughs> you know, the one was intended to finance the other. Um, 
2017 uh, strong security engaged was was costed in a different way and in a more i would say tightly tied way which i think in the end is probably more satisfactory for everybody because it means when you play around with you know to be dismissive about it when you play around with the shopping list it has an immediate impact on the costing of the thing uh ours was looser than that it was intended to buy some flexibility to programmers and the people in the line departments about how that money was going to flow but in the end i think actually strong security engagement is a the, the costing of that is a better is a better way to is a better way to do that and i think tomas you know comments about the governance process i'm sure the two are i wasn't involved obviously but the, the two are obviously the two are obviously connected tomorrow what was your appreciation of the relationship between the the money discussion and the policy and the capability discussion in 2017? One of the interesting uh, legacies of 2017 is that uh, D&D hired, and as I said at the beginning, at the recommendation of the Australians, which had gone through a similar process, they hired an external consulting company uh, to cost all of the commitments. And they they built what some of the folks in D&D who got a bit excited uh, talking about this one when we interviewed them for, for the chapter called the Capability Engine, uh, where you know you have a fairly complex uh, program in which you can feed uh, different data. You ch can change the timelines. You can change the cost. You can change the number of tanks or planes or, or ships or whatever that, that you, you purchase. Um, was it perfect? Of course not. Uh, and you can certainly still make the case that SSC uh, underestimated a number of things. And you, you, you can't say that everything was robustly and perfectly costed. Uh, but it certainly was an improvement on previous instances. Um, and, and one of the interesting legacies of SSC is that it created a precedent. Uh, in terms of 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 engaging in such an uh, an independent costing uh, exercise, not only for defense policies, where my understanding is that this has continued, um, but also from from Treasury Board and Finance's perspective, uh, it creates a precedent, right, for for other major program reviews and and so on. So uh, we'll see when this defense policy update and future defense policy review exercises are done, what happened at this level was the precedent really followed uh, was it improved on um but but based on the interviews we did uh, it, there was a, a qualitative improvement uh, even if it was still far from perfect on on how that costing uh, exercise is done can I just make one point on 2017 around the money that I, I don't i don't think we want to lose sight of this you have to remember the context donald trump is president of the united states and he's beating up countries, including Canada, in public uh, on not meeting the 2% NATO target. Yep. And Canada is about to enter a negotiation on the future of NAFTA with the Trump administration. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I do believe those two things were linked um, and helped unlock the money for strong, secure, and engaged. Um, I actually saw a cabinet paper uh, in the early days of strong, secure, and engaged. It wasn't an MC, it was a draft of something that somebody gave me that they shouldn't have, uh, that had an option for no, no more money for D at zero. That was the recommended option apparently at this stage uh, because there was an expectation coming again out of the election platform as Dave has pointed out where there was to be no money and there was no money in the fiscal framework for any of this. So I do believe that the Trump pressure, we've had pressure from, we had pressure from the Bush administration a little bit, not pressure, but, you know, we'd like you to spend more. 
this was qualitatively different. Let's be honest about it. And I think people were really taken by that. And, uh, and I'm sure that that had some impact on the government in unlocking the money. Yes, it did. Yeah. I don't think it was, I don't buy that it was about, this is better costed than previous platforms. I mean, I'm sure that's true. I don't think that unlocked the money. Nope. Uh, I think what unlocked the money was a lot of external pressure in a way we hadn't seen before at the same time, probably wouldn't have even worked though, if, if they weren't going into this negotiation on NAFTA. And I, I agree with you that the pressure from officials the telling them that in the in Washington in Washington security does trump no pun intended trade and that card's going to get played in Washington I'm sure they were told that I agree with you that pressure from Trump played a strong role in 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 jolting the system right I, and then that the election happened during the process of the drafting of SSC and it changed the dynamics completely and that being said, the robustness of the costing exercise compared to previous exercises did play a, a tactical role, not a strategic one, but it made a difference in getting finance and treasury board on board uh, compared to previous experiences. Uh, the experience in 2004 was interesting, 2005, the DBS, because, yeah, we may not have had Kuzma negotiations on the side, but as you recall, Gene, we had said no on ballistic missile defense. We'd said no on Iraq. Yeah. You've written the book on how that may have motivated some decisions with respect to Afghanistan. It was in the back of the mind, at least of the military on the DPS. And Hillier, who had spent time, uh, a lot of time with the US military, it, it drove him to a considerable extent. It, it really did. We wanna, we wanna play with the big boys. We wanna play with them in Afghanistan, but we, we need a robust defense policy. We need the money to play with the big boys. It's really important. Yeah. So I guess the one thing I would add to, to what Tomas said there, that given the rigor that went into the costing with strong, secure, and engaged, presumably this discussion about the defense policy update will be the first significant defense policy update where the department and the CAF are not going to the government and telling them that they're broke because the assessment was done in a much rigor more rigorous way in 2016 into 2017 um, and that therefore that will at least be somewhat mitigated. I'm not so don't, sure. Don't, don't underestimate the, the ability of, of the Department of Defense to stick to tried and true lines when it comes to their money. That's the theology over there. It's really true, is. we lapsed $2 billion, but we're short of cash. Exactly. Well, and that's a great segue, Ian, into the last thing I wanted to touch on, which is implementation. How much in your various experiences have concern for implementation of a policy factored into the creation and writing of a document. Now, Gene, uh, you've written something for us in the last uh, few years focusing on the imperative to, to have a focus on implementation of, of policy, but maybe I'll start with you. How, how much should uh, versus does the feasibility and a plan for implementation factor into these exercises? Well, it should be fundamental. You know, in our case, though, I have to be honest, I don't remember a lot of robust discussion about implementation. I honestly yeah. don't. I think we believed naively, naively myself included, that uh, Rick Hillier could just make stuff happen uh, to some degree and cut through a lot of the inertia in the Department of National Defense and provide the leadership to eliminate the log rolling and the, and the orthodoxies and get stuff done. They had retention 
training and personnel problems back then. Uh, and part of the uh, commitment was to grow the force. And we didn't really talk about the feasibility of that and the implementation, at least I don't remember. Maybe Vincent was involved in discussions along that. So I don't think in our case, case there was a lot of discussion around implementation. And a year after the that white paper was released, the government was defeated, left office, so implementation was over to Ian to figure out how to do it. But I do want to say something about this current uh, review underway. Uh, as one of the strong, secure, and engaged in this implementation uh, frame. You know, Thomas Edison once said, uh, vision without execution is hallucination. And I think that moniker applies to strong, secure, and engaged. And I don't agree that strong that a review of strong, secure, and engaged, as the budget stated, is needed because of the security change, the change in the security environment in Europe. I think it's needed because strong, secure, and engaged is a failure. It's a failed policy, and it's a failed policy on implementation, and it's a failed policy on three core measures. One is, has already been alluded, they can't come close, close to spending the money that's profiled, that's in the framework for strong, secure, and engaged five, six years later. Dave's documented this better than anyone in the country. Two, They've come nowhere near hitting the 71,500 regular force target that they set. In fact, according to what the numbers that I've seen that I can get a hold of, there's fewer regular force today than there was five years ago when Strong, Secure, and Engaged was announced. And the CDS is out there ringing the alarm bells about that. And three, as a result of not being able to do those two things, people forget the core policy feature a strong, secure, and engaged. And I remember Vance coming in and speaking, I think, at a CGAI event just after strong, secure, and engaged came out, emphasizing this. The core policy change was the concurrent operation uh, feature. In other words, the Canadian forces can sustain two operations indefinitely, internationally, I think of about 1,200 personnel each. This was also a feature of our policy statement back in 2005. Well, they clearly cannot do that today not even come close. So the ambition in strong, secure, and engage, or the vision, uh, is a bit of a hallucination, I would say. It's failed on execution. It's failed on implementation on the core measures, and it needs to be rescoped so that we can actually execute on some of these things. And maybe when they were devising this policy five or six years ago, they were, they were doing the same thing that we were doing. We were just kind of expecting this stuff could happen and would happen, but it hasn't happened. And if anything, it looks like the Canadian forces have gone backwards on some of these key measures over the last five years. Just on, on 2005, Dave, if I could to respond to a couple of Gene's points, there was no implementation plan. I can vouch for that, certainly not on the civilian side. If it was on the military side, they never shared it with us. Um, and it goes back a little bit to Tom Ass's point at the beginning that, that uh, you know, we didn't have a robust challenge function. And, and so there's a lot of stuff jammed into that review that uh, was not implementable and, and it never was implemented. And I'm not even sure if it would have been implemented if the Liberals had stayed in power. So whether it was the Hillary's infamous big honking ship or the mobile gun system or whatever, I mean, it just, and all the command structures and, and you know, some, some were put up, ripped down five years later, some stayed around in different forms, still not sure if they're really true to the vision of Hillary. It was a bit of a mess and, and there was no implementation plan. And I, I got a feeling that government looked at the DPS and, and 
you know, a few years later decided that every single major policy initiative that comes into cabinet needs an implementation plan. It's now required in an MC to have in the annex yeah. an implementation plan and not like a page of bullets, like, you know, a robust implementation do? plan, milestones, how are you going to hit them? It's not and just then, an FTE oh, shopping list, Vince. Exactly. And I mean, I'm, I'm only half joking when I say, I swear to God, the DPS, if the DPS has one legacy, it's probably creating that. I mean, I'm sure there are lots of other failures that are similar, but I think PCO and PMO and the PM himself got sick and tired of, of major policy initiatives coming in and nobody thought about implementation. You should be thinking about implementation from the get-go. Right from the get-go. I think what happened was back then, you know, 15, 20 years ago, you finished the review and then literally the night before the MC was uh, <laughs> to go into cabinet, shit, we better, we better throw it again, an implementation plan on this. And now it's all going to be pulled together. Again, I'm being partly facetious, but, but only partly. So you need, to, you need to, to cook it in from the beginning. Can we actually do this stuff? And it's not just whether you've got the money or not. It's, it's, it's as Gene said, that you're going to spend it. You're going to spend it by these milestones. You're going to prioritize and how you're going to set up these structures and, and so on and so forth. Ian, you left government before you got to the implementation uh, phase of the Canada First Defense Strategy. But from your recollection, was there much discussion about how to actually get it done um, as it was being worked through? Well, I, I, I want to push back on you just for a split second about that uh, assessment of my uh, uh, role here, because in a sense, the part of CFDS that went well was the military off-the-shelf purchases. And we got those through the system extremely quickly, and they arrived extremely quickly. Um, uh, uh, the next uh, O'Connor's deal with, uh, with his counterpart that we're going to take the next four C-17s to come off the assembly line, and you'll just extend the multi-year procurement for another four and you'll get the four at the end was a piece of brilliance um and uh, other pieces that were similarly acquired came you know before i left which was great uh it's the but you can't build defense capacity capabilities around just around military off-the-shelf purchases unfortunately otherwise this would all be very this would all be very easily um uh no um and you know, to go back to my original comment, there's nothing normal about a defense policy review. There's nothing routine about it. You jack up so much political time, and political effort on the discussion of these documents, which don't last that long. I mean, Eugene said it better, more sharply than I was going to. Um, that that you know, there's no further political capacity to take a look at the at the implementation side. So. You know, the example, it's after I left, um, you know, CFDS itself led to a change in deputy minister. Um, I mean, I, that's not quite right, but but um, but CFDS plus the fallout from from uh, Medusa led to a, a, an early change in, in deputy minister. A few years later, the auditor general produces a report about uh, kind of the breakdown of accountability about helicopter systems both the naval helicopter system and the uh, the, um, the, the the chinook purchase uh which you know i think 15 years later if you read it it's still kind of eye-popping and nothing changes as a result of uh of that um except a complete breakdown of political confidence and the ability to deliver any of this stuff which leads to 
CF-18 um, secretary was laid to a you know, 10-year delay in replacing the, 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 the fighter force. Um, I hope Vince is right that the, that the more deliberate discussion about implementation is, is better now. But frankly, um, you know, I'm not sure that this is unique to the defense side. Um, the federal government is very good at issuing people checks or e-checks now. Um, but anything else that requires a connection between political will and pu senior public service recommendations in Ottawa and operations in the field, this is not a unique problem at at, at DND. It's not unique to defense policy. There's a bigger set of problems there that cut across. That is a genuinely whole of government problem. On that happy note, uh, I'll, I'll segue thanking you all uh, to adding to this uh, great discussion. I'll ask about your own personal implementation plan for book reading. Uh, Gene, starting with you, uh, what are you reading these days? Oh, okay, I just finished uh, Neil Ferguson's optimistically titled book, Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe, which is his uh, history of pandemics and other catastrophes, and it's kind of a typical Neil Ferguson book full of facts and data and self-indulgence and overwrought, but it's still worth reading because uh, it comes right up to 2021, I think, uh, trying to doc document the current pande pandemic as it's happening and compared to previous pandemics that I didn't know anything about, the 1957 pandemic, which I didn't know anything about, and other catastrophes. Anyway, it's a good read, and uh, I encourage uh, you and your listeners to take a look at it. Ian? I've been listening to Tom DeKino's uh, memoirs on his time, uh, uh, pri Private Power Public uh, uh, Purpose, uh, which is which goes back to his uh, uh, childhood. It's a very complete uh, biography. I haven't finished it yet, but I have got to the point where he's working for uh, uh, for Mr. Trudeau and then through the origins of the what becomes the Business Council on National Issues. And it is a it is a it is a very easy read but through a, a very a, 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 a breathtaking breadth of public policy issues for which you can only be jealous that Tom had uh, a front row seat for for all of that. Tomas? Uh, well, some of my research uh, is on the Middle East and including on Yemen. So right now I'm reading a book called 25 Days to Aden, which is by Michael Knights, who's associated with the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, one of the Middle East think tanks in Washington. And he uh, knows Yemen extremely well. And it's so it's a story of how uh, special forces from the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, uh, rushed to Aden in uh um 2015 when uh the houthis uh took the capital of yemen sana and then rushed down to everybody's surprise and were on the verge of taking aden and southern yemen which nobody would have imagined was possible so the uae sent a bunch of special forces and michael knights was embedded with them for a while and did the kind of of uh effective expeditionary operations that you don't usually associate with uh, the militaries of most Arab states, uh, and they did it extremely well. I mean, these, these are some of the best trained and performing special forces in the world, very close to the U.S., uh, doing a lot of counterterrorism operations against Al-Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula and Yemen still today. Uh, so it's it's a really good story of, of those very surprising and extremely fast-paced uh, operations in those days. And Vince? 
I just picked up a couple of days ago uh, Max Hastings' book on the Cuban Missile Crisis. I've always wow. been a big fan of Hastings, a popular story, and he often gets gets uh, mauled by the critics. But I, I've I've always enjoyed him reading his books back 20, 30 years, Overlord and what have you. And so I've just started it. Looks like it's going to be a good read, probably a fairly fast read. But uh, I just couldn't help myself, given everything that's happened in Ukraine these days, to get even more depressed. But you know, maybe look back on better times. <laughs> Well, everyone, thanks uh, for joining us today on Defense Deconstructed. Uh, it was a great conversation. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Defense Deconstructed, part of the CGAI Podcast Network. If you like the show, please remember to rate us and leave a comment on your podcast app. And if you like our stuff, please feel free to check out our donation page at cgaiica support. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The podcast is brought to you by our team in Ottawa. And thanks go to our producer, Charlotte Duval-Antoine, and Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Dave Perry, and thanks for listening to this episode of Defense Deconstructed.